This is the Horse Radio Network. This is episode 101 of Horsemanship Radio, brought to you by Omega Fields, the world's best omega-3 supplements for horses. Horsemanship Radio is part of the family of the Horse Radio Network, and I think you're going to have fun with some of these people that we talk to today, all the way from the filmmaking world to the rescue world. This is Debbie Lauks, and you're listening to The Horsemanship Radio. Thanks for joining us. Horsemanship Radio airs on the 1st and the 15th of the month, and I have my producer, Coach Jen, with me today. Hi, Jen. Hello. How's Debbie? I'm good. I'm good. Why? It's, we had fun making this episode. I'm really excited for people to get to hear these people. So we had kind of a party. We yes. had um, <laughs> this was a party. We did, we, it was yeah. kind of a party. Yeah, <laughs> I remember when when we were recording Bev and Aaron, um, who we'll introduce shortly here. Uh, we I was up in Oregon with the Polo Association, overlooking this beautiful Washington and Oregon, um, the Columbia River dividing them, and these windsurfers, and and they were having they were so ready for this fundraiser they were going to do and it was just really cool to get to know them and and their heart for horses and thoroughbreds and charity and everything and uh and then you and i got to interview stefan morale who's a renowned filmmaker and what he said about what he learned from horses just gave me chills it was really cool yeah and it's it's they kind of go hand in hand because Stefan is making films that are going to go so far beyond the equestrian community. Yeah. Right. And that's something we need to do because horse, the equestrian community, the horse industry has been kind of keeping its head down for too long. We need to welcome the world in. Yeah. And then, so, which helps us to preserve our passion. And then Bev and Aaron, Aaron yeah, are, at the other side of that, where they're bringing horses who have fallen onto hard times as far as being responsibly cared for, and mm-hmm. they are bringing them back into the fold, so to speak. So- yeah, yeah. And really good your good point about outreach, too, because Stefan is reaching a whole new audience that um, Aaron and Bev uh, probably couldn't. And, uh, and, and, and repurposing. There's, there's a theme of repurposing in here, too, which I just love. So, yeah, people are going to have fun. Yeah. yeah. All right, we'll get started right after we hear from our very important uh, title sponsors, Omega Fields. Your horse is your partner in sport, in leisure, and just in life. To keep him at his peak performance and optimal health, a solid nutritional foundation is key. Ideally, horses are able to graze fresh, growing grasses, which most closely mimic their natural diet. But that may not always be possible, and we may need to supply some of those missing ingredients in today's diets and provide more functional foods. One component of a horse's diet that is often underfed are omega-3 fatty acids. While more prevalent in fresh forages, harvested forages are lower in omega-3 fatty acids due to their more advanced maturity. Obviously, grasses and legumes have to grow to a sufficient height in order to be harvested, while foraging patterns of horses show great preference for shorter, less mature plants. That's why modern horsemen and horsewomen trust Omega Horse Shine to provide a powerful, bountiful source of omega-3 fatty acids for their equine partners. 
Look for Omega Horseshine from Omega Fields at your local tack and feed supplier, or you can find them online at omegafields.com. Bev Strauss is co-founder and director of Mid-Atlantic Horse Rescue. Graduate A in Pony Club, grew up riding, thoroughbreds, eventing, hunting, etc. She gravitated to the track, was training at Delaware, and a, and, my, and good friend uh, Jenny Suarez uh, realized that thoroughbreds left for the New Holland auction and off to slaughter every Sunday. They, they wanted to make a change. So they started in September 2002 with $2,000. They bought three thoroughbreds, uh, rented a three-acre field, and uh, just pulled the, their, themselves up by their bootstraps. And uh, they have now placed over 1,200 thoroughbreds um, in the Del- Delaware Park and Maryland Jockey Club area. And uh, they're transitioning horses uh, out of feedlots and into people's homes. It's really cool. Aaron Crady is the Executive Director of Thoroughbred Charities of America in Lexington, Kentucky. Now, Aaron is a graduate of the St. Lawrence University in New York and holds a Master of Arts in Media Communications. Aaron joined the Thoroughbred Owners and Breeders Association in 2006 as Director of Marketing and Communications. In October 2009, Aaron took the reins as Executive Director at TCA. And prior to joining TOBA, TOBA and TCA, Aaron worked as an account executive and media buyer for Group 5 Advertising in Gainesville, Florida. So she's well-rounded. She also worked as an account executive for an online gaming company in New York, New York. So you get the racing side of it. Welcome, Bev Strauss and Aaron Crady. Well, welcome. I've got Bev Strauss and I've got Aaron Crady, a very fortunate group here to get to work with Thoroughbreds. And I'm so lucky to have you on. So first, I'm going to say have Aaron say hi so you get her voice in here. Hi, Aaron. Hello, thanks for having me. Thank you. Erin is a part of the TCA, which is the Thoroughbred Charities of America. I'm really happy to have you on. And we've got Bev Strauss. Say hi, Bev. Hey there, everybody. That's nice. Bev is the co-founder and president uh, of a thoroughbred charity called Mid-Atlantic Horse Rescue. And I'm so happy to have two very instrumental women helping horses on today. And I hope that... um, I hope that this will actually influence all our listeners out there to really see maybe maybe you don't have a thoroughbred or maybe you don't even know too much about thoroughbreds, but to see the versatility of thoroughbreds and the ability of people to repurpose thoroughbreds for a longer life and a a longer career. So, Erin, I'd love to start with you. How did you get hooked up first with Thoroughbred Charities of America? Are you a horse girl? I am. I actually grew up riding hunter jumpers, and uh, I don't currently own a horse, but the last horse I did own, she was an off-the-track thoroughbred. She made, uh, I want to say, a grand total of uh, maybe about $900, Uh, so let's say she just did not excel on the track, but she was an incredible equitation horse. So, yes, I I got the horse bug as a young girl, and um, I'm lucky enough now to sort of blend my passion uh, with my profession. So I'm very, very fortunate to be a part of Thoroughbred Charities of America. Yes, you are. And it is a passion, I am sure. But you're doing great things. So describe to us, the listener who doesn't know about TCA, what what, uh, the purpose of Thoroughbred Charities of America is and, and how long you've been around, too. 
Yep, sure. Uh, we were actually founded in 1990 uh, in Middletown, Delaware, by uh, a couple called, uh, their names are Herb and Ellen Molis, as well as their friend, the late Alaire DuPont. Mm-hmm. And um, the story goes that... Um, Alaire was alerted to some abandoned uh, horses and said, you know what, Herb and Ellen, we've got to do something to uh, to help these horses. Uh, Herb and Ellen threw a dinner party at their home and auctioned off some uh, artwork mm-hmm. and provided uh, the funding for um, from from those uh, items to help the horses, and uh, from there, you know, in 1990 to here today, TCA has just grown and grown and grown. We are now the charitable arm of the Thoroughbred Owners and Breeders Association, nice. and essentially, our mission is to provide a better life for thoroughbreds um, by supporting qualified repurposing and retirement organizations, but also importantly by helping people who care for thoroughbreds. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way we go about doing that is we are a grant-making organization, so we're kind of like the United Way of the thoroughbred industry. We raise funds, and then we distribute those funds via an annual grant application process, and it's quite a rigorous process, as, as Dev can probably attest to, um, <laughs> but we feel very strongly that it is our duty to be a good steward of any funding that comes to us. So then we, of course, have to be um, very diligent about how we distribute that funding. So we have a a great um, process in place to review grant applications, make sure um, our applicants and then subsequently our grant recipients meet all of our criteria for for a grant. Mm -hmm. So, Beverly, when you came up against this uh, formidable application for grants what did you think did you think did you think oh my gosh there um this is awfully invasive to ask all this stuff of of us uh and uh and how did that first grant go well actually if you sort of go back we started the rescue mid-atlantic horse rescue in 2002 um a good friend of mine Ginny suarez and i were both training racehorses at delaware park on a small scale and we knew how many horses were heading off to low-end auctions mm-hmm. every Sunday at the end, you know, at the end of the week. Um, yeah, what's a, what's a low-end auction? It's it's not a good well, it's a No, it's not a good thing. It's a livestock auction where many and well, probably the majority of these horses are sold for slaughter. So Ginny and I knew how many horses were leaving the track every week, and we we wanted to do something. We decided to start a rescue. Um, We talked about it all summer. We had a concept, and in September of 2002, there were, I think, 27 thoroughbreds at the local auction that day, and I called Jenny, and I said, you know what? If we're going to do this, today's the day. Mm -hmm. So we pulled together a little money, and actually we got a little bit of seed money, a tiny bit of seed money from Mrs. DuPont, and we went and bought three horses. And then all of a sudden we said, oh, my gosh, (laughs) we need a name, we need a website, we need this, that, and the other thing. We rented a three-acre field with a shed, and about two weeks later, Jeannie and I took our pictures and our hearts on our sleeves, and we went and called Herb and Ellen Mullis (laughs) and said, this is what we want to do. Can you help? And TCA gave us our very first grant back then. I think it was $5,000, and that was huge to us. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So the initial grant was basically sit down face to face. This is what we want to do. Um, and they supported us 100%. Um, and they've done so every year since then. Now, it has become a rigorous um, application process. But, you know, that's a good thing. Yeah. Because it, it makes us really watch what we're doing as far as, um, you know, crossing the T's, dotting the I's. But it just ensures that the money is being well spent. To me, if you're an organization that can't complete this process, you you shouldn't be receiving funding because the public gives their money faithfully, donates to TCA, and again, they expect TCA to spend the money wisely. And if you're an organization that's not um, well-run as a business, knowledgeable, et cetera, et cetera, um, you know, those are organizations that should not be getting the funding. So, sure. yeah, it's rigorous, but it's well worth it. It's, That's great. Um, yeah. So the public knows that um, what they're what they're seeing is uh, good horsemanship when you're when you're yeah. taking care of these horses, your your um, experience. And and so we know what breaks Bev's heart and we know how you got started. I love that you didn't wait to get ready to get ready to get ready and get your website up first before you <laughs> rescued a horse. You know, I love right. that. So, so Aaron, what what breaks your heart? What what was like the first charitable work that you did in your life? Oh my goodness, um, I, I've just always had a soft spot for animals. I, I really, I you know, it, it, it just, they just get to me. I, I can't um, I can't pinpoint one um, sort of event, but I've always been surrounded by animals, and you know, just it, it, it pains me when I can't offer more help. Um, we're actually uh, quite involved with um, the Hurricane uh, Maria efforts in Puerto Rico right now, um, trying to uh, assist with the 800-plus uh, thoroughbreds there at the racetrack. And it were, logistically, it's become quite the challenge, um, and it just, it's breaking my heart right now that we, I, I can't get in there sooner and, and get the aid to these horses um, that they so desperately need. So I just, you know, seeing a need and, and not being able to immediately fulfill it, um, it's tough. But, you know, at the same time, we, we certainly do the best we can um, with our limited um, resources, you know. But that, that said, everything that we do do is, is thanks to our donors. Um, we are a 100% charitable organization. So um, the aid that we, we do expend in the form of, of grants uh, each year, you know, is, is 100% due to um, some wonderful supportive donors that we have. And, you know, over the last 27 years of TCA, um, we've granted over $22 million, wow. um, to charities across the country. So, um, you know, that's certainly something to be proud of, and we work very hard to accomplish that each year. How many thoroughbred industry-related nonprofits do you probably work with every year? How many do you every give grants year, to? Every year, yeah, it varies um, a little bit year by year. This year, we had 71 grant recipients across the wow. country. And keep in mind, that's that's in um, collectively called aftercare, you know, the, the horse care mm -hmm. side of it. But we also support organizations that are working um on the back stretch of racetracks or on the farms, you know, to provide health and human services for the individuals that are caring for the thoroughbreds because it's an often, yeah. often underserved population. Um, yeah. So more than 50% of our funding does go to the, the horse side of it, but we also do support 
the uh, human side as well. Additionally, a, a smaller smaller percentage of our funding goes to equine-assisted therapy programs that are using thoroughbreds within their programs. Oh, fantastic, too. So you're repurposing all of it. And I love that you help the families, too. These are the people that are directly working with those horses on the track. And it's so important that they um, that they felt like they're they belong there too. I, I always worry about the grooms more than I worry about the owners. You know, the people that are actually hands on working with the horses, you can educate the owners and the trainers in the case of thoroughbreds on the track. Uh, but really the trickle down is what I, I worry about. It's what keeps me up at night is are those guys that, that clean the stalls? Are they aware of your compassion and, and you know, how much you care about the horses? So if you're involved in their lives, that's just another indicator. I think that's wonderful. Yeah, we, we are. There's some great organizations uh, out there that are working to provide medical services, dental services, um, e- even just providing um, communications options, you know, computer labs and, and phones and that sort of thing to many of the backstretch workers because many of them still have ha- are, are immigrants and have families in other countries. Um, yeah. So for them to be able to communicate with their families, um, you know, I think it makes their day a little bit brighter for sure. Yeah. This is sort of a. Oh, go ahead, Beth. Yeah. I'm sorry. The one thing I've noticed, um, you know, right now we're based at Delaware Park with our one horse in our racing stable. But the thing that always strikes me is these hot walkers and grooms, valets, whatever, they are so dedicated to these horses that they don't own. And, you know, they just, they look at every little detail. I mean, it's really, they're the success behind these horses and they're mm-hmm. so they're unsung heroes you know we just we look at all these different grooms a lot of them don't speak English and they really care about their horses you know they cry when the horse gets claimed away or the horse goes home to the farm and you know they take pride in these horses and it's just they're phenomenal people collectively it's, it's just nice it's very rewarding to see that yeah, that's wonderful. And then when you get them, they've been handled nicely. So tell us about Mid-Atlantic Horse Rescue, Bev, and and uh, and, and t- maybe give us a real story uh, between what TCA has been able to do in awarding grants to you and then what you've been able to do that's over and above. I mean, you're one of 71 out of all the, I'm sure, applications, and I don't even ask how many you get, um, that TCA does. Tell us, tell us, get a little personal with us about the horses. Oh, boy. <laughs> How yeah, long do you I have? Know. I mean, there's so many <laughs> stories. You know, that very first day when we decided it was the time to act and start Mid-Atlantic Horse Rescue, we had to choose three out of the 27, and that wasn't easy to do because we knew the fate of the others was bleak. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, we started with the three horses in the rented three-acre field. Over the years, we've pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps. Um, we're now on 160 acres, and we've got... 40 horses at a given time. We've placed over 1,200 horses. Um, plus, in addition to providing um, safe haven, we get, we'll get thoroughbreds for other valid, legitimate rescues um, and send them off because we can't handle them all. But it's just been amazing, the support of a group like TCA, who, who had faith in us from the very beginning and has continued to have faith. It's made our job easier, but it's not always easy. You know, we always have to pick and choose horses that we can save. And that's hard. Um, Mm -hmm. It's just, um, 
you know, a, well, a personal story, you know, we've been pulling horses for a while from kill pens and I guess it was maybe, I'm trying to think what year it might've been. It's got, got to be at least 10 years now. Um, we pulled a horse out of the kill pen that we didn't have room for, but I ran his tattoo and found out that he had been the Pennsylvania bred champion two-year-old and he had been on the triple crown mm. trail and, you know, he was, he had ankles. He was maybe eight at the time, had done his running, had made a quarter of a million dollars. Wow. This horse had so much class. And so we pulled him and I thought, well, I'm sure somebody from his past will want to help him. You know, mm. we didn't have room for him, but we bought him. Um, I actually sent him to my friends up at Aikendale, another accredited rescue, because we didn't have room. Um, and it was about four months later. And it, unfortunately, his former racing connections weren't interested in helping him or weren't able to help him. And about four months later, I was looking for a personal horse of my own. And this horse had always just struck me. I just always liked him, even though I'd only spent, you know, maybe an hour with him total before he left for Aikendale. So I called Aaron, who was running the program at the time, and I said, what's his story? Is he sound? She said, oh, he's pretty sound. So I adopted him, brought him no. and he became my my heart horse. <laughs> You're a heart horse. I love it. Oh, I, I adore this horse. He's tough. He's handsome. He's just the most handsome horse I've ever seen. Um, you know, I brought him home and he promptly, re I realized how hard he was to ride, but we did quite well. Um, and now he's retired at my farm. You know, we have a small farm and, you know, every day when I see him, he makes me smile. And here's a horse that, you know, almost was lost. And yeah. I just know mm -hmm. how much joy he gives to me. And I know, you know, out of the horses we've placed with, with our adopters, they feel the same way about their horses. Yeah, um, do they? You know, it, but it is yeah. hard because we do have to pick and choose. Um, it's hard to know which horses we can help, which ones we can't. We do as many as we can, but it's also important not to bring in too many so that we end up not doing the right thing for the horses that we do have in our program. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, and bless your yeah. heart for knowing the difference. I, I I do appreciate that, and I hope people appreciate that listening to you too. Is there, it, it, you know, you need somebody in the Bev position that really knows on the ground, boots on the ground, um, what yeah. you can do best, what you can do best with each horse, and and how do you find your adopters, Bev? A lot of it now is word of mouth. Initially, we did print advertising. Now, social media. Um, the RRP brings in a lot of people, um, but it's just um, a lot of it's word of mouth. People have heard that, um, you know, we've done a good job or something. My friend got a horse from you, that kind of thing. We really pride ourselves on matching the horse with the rider because if you set, if you put a horse in a home where it's not perfectly suited, it's just yeah. not going to work out for the horse or the person. And a horse is a huge commitment. So, you know, if I have an older woman who wants a quiet trail horse, I'm not going to send her a hot little mare. Yeah. Um, if I've got a kid who wants to go jump the moon, I'm going to make sure that that horse is sound and willing and able to do that. Um, so it's the one thing that we've always done is we've tried to save the horses that are adoptable. Because if we take in the old lame, I mean, I'm not saying that we don't have some older lame horses. We do. <laughs> But if we target, you know, the old lame horse that's never going to find a home, we can help that horse for its life. If we pull a horse that is, you know, young and sound and can go on, we can adopt that horse out, turn around and go get another. Mm -hmm. So 
you know, it's very important to be able to adopt these horses out to spread the burden. Um, you know, we do have some sanctuary horses at our farm, which, you know, I don't know if we'll ever find homes and they'll live out their lives with us. But we really, you know, while we have those horses, these young sound horses are often getting lost. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's really a numbers game. You've got to look at your finances, your help, um, <laughs> the number of adopters, the donors. Mm-hmm. You know, we need to get these horses out into homes doing things. And that really raises the awareness of the thoroughbred. And then, you know, more people say, oh, I want a thoroughbred, too. Um, right. Yeah, that it's it's possible yeah, that they, they, you know, a lot of people look down on racing. Uh, you know, they're, they're, mm-hmm. they, it has its detractors. We'll just be real honest here. And and but I think that you can only be hopeless if you don't know that there are actually uh, ways that you can make a difference. And I think people have figured Absolutely. that out in the greyhound racing industry. And so they can certainly figure it out in the thoroughbred industry if you care to reach out. One of the developments that I love that I've been hearing about is the thoroughbred makeover, which brings it to a more public <laughs> arena, doesn't it? It brings it to the it's a public awareness. It's not just a word of mouth or one off thing. And I understand that TCA is Sponsor? Are, they, are you the t- head sponsor, Erin? Yes. The, yes. Yeah. We are the title sponsor of the uh, Retired Racehorse Project's Thoroughbred Makeover. Um, the fifth annual makeover is uh, occurring here in Lexington the first weekend of October. Um, and it is such an incredible event. If, if anyone is ever in Lexington around that time of year, I highly encourage you to come out to the Kentucky Horse Park. And it's four days of about 500 recently off-the-track thoroughbreds trying their hearts out in 10 different disciplines. I mean, it, it's, it's moving to see um, so many thoroughbreds all in one place competing and, and succeeding in a variety of, of different disciplines when they were on the track, you know, maybe less than a year ago. It's, mm-hmm. it's a really interesting event. I think the two was a last year, um, the event at the, at the horse park. It was, I, I feel like I had a little bit of a moment there because it was the finale. There were, were sort of presenting themselves in the arena for the, the final judging. And just to see these 10 thoroughbreds top of their game, there they are at the, you know, grand stage in the Kentucky horse park. Um, it was, I, I got a little teary eyed. I'm oh. not going to lie. I mean, it was, <laughs> it's such a sweet thing. Um, you know, and what, what the Retire Race Horse Project is doing, working to create a market for thoroughbreds, uh, working to, cr- to increase demand for thoroughbreds in the sport horse community. Um, it's, it's, it's part of the equation, you know, yeah. and, and that's kind of what TCA's sort of mentality about that is, you know, thoroughbred aftercare to me, to TCA, uh, encompasses two sides. First off, you know, we, you have to support the organizations like, like Mid-Atlantic, you know, what, what Bev's doing in, in retraining and rehoming, but we also have to support the other side of the equation, which is creating a demand and creating a market for these thoroughbreds yeah. to move into. So Bev has somewhere to move these thoroughbreds. Um, you know, once they're they're retrained and, and kind of let down from the track, um, so it's really important to TCA to support both sides of that equation. And the thoroughbred makeover um, is certainly, you know, doing a really great job of getting some awareness and um, increasing the awareness and visibility of of the thoroughbred. That's fantastic. And so it sounds fun. Go ahead, Bev. Yeah, tell us about it. Well, it's int- it's interesting because back when we started, I couldn't. You know, I thought, oh, everybody's going to want to know that these horses are going off to dark places and that they're going to want to help them. And, 
you know, aftercare was really a dirty word in the industry back in late 90s, early 2000s. Um, and what we've seen, it's been wonderful. The industry is now embracing aftercare. Um, you know, they have the Thoroughbred Aftercare Alliance, which inspects and accredits rescues. Um, you've got TCA, which supports rescues. And we've got racetracks that come to us now and have us help transition their horses. In fact, you know, we just were aware of a situation on Saturday where a trainer from a local track sold two horses to, quote, unquote, a good home. And on Monday, they ended up at New Holland. I saw them there. They mm. went to kill. We were able to buy them both back. Mm. The trainer had no idea. And the track actually called the trainer. And said, you know, I called the track. They, they called the trainer and said, look. These horses are in trouble. You need to act. Mm. So it's just been a phenomenal turnaround for the industry, and we're grateful for that. But the one element that was missing all along was the marketing of thoroughbreds. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, because it seems like every breed organization has an association which markets their horses. I think the Halflinger yeah. Association, their slogan is more than just beautiful hair. You know, <laughs> and we didn't have something for the thoroughbreds. So yeah. when Stuart Pittman started the Retired Racehorse Project, that was such an outlet. And we're so grateful for TCA to pick up the the ball here and yeah. support RRP and create this market. It's because everyone wants a thoroughbred now, and that's wonderful. That yeah. you know, We're seeing horses leaving the track into good homes directly. The horsemen are able to stop racing their horses earlier and sell them for money to good homes to go on yeah. and be sport horses. and. You know, TCA's support of the makeover and the Retired Racehorse Project is huge because that was a missing piece of the puzzle. Yeah, absolutely. You guys, it's so fun to hear light bulb moments, right? All these things are going yeah. off. And, <laughs> and, you know, and we do, we tend to get, you know, kind of in our discipline walls, right? Our little echo chambers in one breed or one discipline. And you really are breaking through for the thoroughbred industry, but you're also going to influence those that haven't created their walls yet either and uh and i think this next generation is going to be much more cognizant of um repurposing and i love that thoroughbreds are going to polo three-day eventing we just have some superheroes in those worlds and i'm talking the horses now too much less the people who are willing professionals who are putting their heart and soul and time and resources into uh, repurposed thoroughbreds uh, ottbs uh, off the track thoroughbreds how you know whatever you guys want to grab out there i don't care um you know if they're repurposing a thoroughbred that doesn't go to slaughter uh, better and better and and listen up the countries that maybe don't have associations doing that right now any listeners out there that want to start what bev and aaron are able to do um, you know that uh, bev says just do it first and then organize second <laughs> you could do it too <laughs> and i love it i love it it's about the horses and you guys are living it so i'm so proud of you and really excited to have you on. I want to hear more about. So TCA, what's your grant cycle, um, Aaron? And you know, and when can we help? What can we do to help? Sure, sure. Uh, well, if there are any um, listeners out there that have a, a thoroughbred rescue and um, you know are in uh, need of potential funding, um, our grant application becomes available on our website. That's tca.org. 
um, each January. They're about so oh, January 15th or so, um, and it is there uh, for download and completion. Then it is due to me on March 15th, so it has to be in my office with all of the parts and pieces included, one complete grant application into my office in March. Then we, uh, we being myself and my grants committee, which is comprised of five of our board members, we go through each and every application and review um, and determine, you know, if, if the applicant meets our criteria then grants are distributed by the end of June. Um, so that's kind of kind of the annual cycle there, but important to note again, um, you know, we would not be able to do what, what we do without our donors. Um, and that said, our, our largest annual fundraiser does occur every January. It's a stallion season auction. So if there oh. are any thoroughbred breeders out there, please consider the TCA Stallion Season Auction as a source for your um, stallion needs. We have usually about 200 or so stallion seasons from thoroughbreds in 10-plus states at varying price points. Um, so it's a, a great opportunity there to perhaps get some, some good deals on some seasons. Um, but then additionally, we offer um, some items for those people that want to support TCA but maybe aren't in a thoroughbred breeding world. Uh, so we offer, you know, trips and uh, racing experiences, memorabilia, that sort of thing available in an online auction. Oh, fun. We all love those. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's where a competitive <laughs> spirit comes out. Really fun. That's fun. And Bev, tell tell people why um, your your resource for rescue horses uh, will be you'll be first in line at uh, the TCA grant cycle first of all and what you're coming up with next year are you able to grow take in more horses or could you always more use more funds <laughs> we can always use more funds we can always use more room um, more people it's you know we've been very careful to grow as we can you know we started with three horses it was basically Ginny and I, and then we, you know, added a field here and there. We added part-time help. Um, you know, we initially, out of the three, we adopted the first horse that December and then went and bought one more, and it got so we could go, we would adopt two and get three more and adopt three and get five more. That's how we've grown. And we're at a, a point right now where we are pretty maxed out with our resources that we have, with the numbers of horses we have. We do have more of the farm available to us, but we're not quite there yet financially or from a manpower standpoint to expand. So what we've done this year is we started using two different satellite farms um, with qualified trainers that I know personally that know and love thoroughbreds. What we're starting to do is send a couple of horses here and there to these other farms to continue their retraining and to get adopted out from there. Um, those farms are also inspected and um, accredited, so it's it's a pretty stringent process. But that's what we're trying to do now is grow that way until we get to the point where we can fence in the remaining 70 acres and take in another 20 or 30 horses. Um, okay, you're going to have to take your vitamins. So it's, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's hard because I've got, a, I've got an amazing team of people. You know, it's a small and mighty team. Um, my board is wonderful. They're very supportive. And then we've got, 
you know, our farm manager and a couple of volunteers and a couple of paid employees and everybody just rolls up their sleeves and does whatever has to be done. And we couldn't have that success without these people, you know, working as a team together. Um, I don't want to stress them out by saying, oh, guess what? We're going to fence in those other fields and we're yeah. going to buy, you know, <laughs> 20 more horses. Um, but we continue to, we want to continue to grow um, in a methodical manner because we don't want to okay. fail. Okay. Um, so, you know, we count on funding from, you know, the thoroughbred, the thoroughbred industry, TCA and TAA, to help us achieve that goal. And then we count on our private donors and we count on our adopters, you know, to yeah. walk around these horse shows saying, I love my horse. I got him from Mid-Atlantic. <laughs> right. You have a little sticker that you put on their hips or anything? Is this, you know, I, I, I was adopted from the Mid-Atlantic Horse Rescue. <laughs> you we should. actually, yeah, we give we give our adopters custom saddle pads with, there you with go. our logo on them. And sometimes that's a curse. Sometimes that's a blessing. Oh. <laughs> you know, we say if, your horse is, if your horse is going to misbehave, well, that's the excuse. If he's going to be a star, well, that's the excuse. <laughs> that's right. Good one. Good one. Well, um, they can find you at what website do you want people to go to? Uh, our website is midatlantichorserescue.org. We're based in uh, Chesapeake City, Maryland. Um, and we welcome visitors at any time. We just have to, you know, you can give us a call and we open up the farm. We had a really nice little girl yesterday. She's eight years old for her birthday. She collected $285 for our horses. Aww. So it's just, it's really neat. As you said, the next generation is coming along and interested in repurposing horses and interested in thoroughbreds. And that's, that's what we want to, um, enable. Love it. Yeah, love it. That's wonderful. And and if people want to do matching TCA grants, where to, how do they get a hold of you at the TCA? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I, we always graciously accept donations uh, of any size. Our website is tca.org. Uh, we are located here in Lexington, Kentucky. And uh, anyone can reach out to me at any time. And uh, I would be happy to talk about all things thoroughbreds and TCA. Nice. Spoken like a great executive director at TCA. <laughs> thank you for that. Well, both of you, thank you so much for illuminating us about Thoroughbred Rescue and how much potential there is out there and where people can go to find just a fabulous horse. So I thank you guys for both being on the show today in Horsemanship Radio. Hi, Carol Herter here, president of Cavallo, home of the world's most trusted and popular hoof boots. You know, one of the most interesting parts of what I do is the many horsey stories I get to hear. Most of them are really uplifting. Some are stories of challenges, and a few are downright sad. Recently, a wonderful woman took the time to approach us at a show to share a story about her horse who went down in quicksand. It started out as a really scary story. We were holding our breaths waiting for the outcome, and it turned out wonderful. They winched the horse out relatively unscathed, albeit, you know, a little traumatized, and everyone standing around were super amazed that he still had his cavallo hoof boots on. Scary story with a good ending. Another testament to cavallo. If you don't have a pair for your horse, it's time. Cavallos are easy to put on, easy to take off when you want to take them off, and they stay on. They stay on in all terrain. Cavallo, the world's most trusted hoof boots. 
Stefan Morel is an award-winning documentary filmmaker, and he adds the title of honorary gaucho to his introductions. He's so cute. Through his films, Stefan's intuitive understanding of storytelling helps his audience share the feeling of being involved in the story. Stefan is is a director, a cinematographer, a photographer, an editor, and a writer, too. His movies like Blind Spot and Herd, H-E-R-D, bring a global audience to his portfolio and have earned him many awards. Well, welcome, Stefan Morel. You're just an award-winning documentary filmmaker, and I am so happy to have you on Horsemanship Radio. Where do you hail from right now, Stefan? I'm uh, originally from Montreal, Quebec, Canada. Uh, I currently live in Toronto, uh, Ontario, which uh, may not quite be the horse country that you live in, but it's a pretty dynamic horse country. It really is. And you're a horse guy, which is what makes this really a fun interview because we get the artsy side, which all horsewomen love, and we get the the horsey side, which all women are deprived of in most men that they know these days. So um, I'm excited to have you on. We were fortunate enough to uh, be at the Missoula, the Equus International Film Festival in Missoula, Montana, and meet you there and and witness the award that you won with movies, and we can get into that a little bit. But first, I, I want to introduce you as a horse person, because you are a, a competitor, even. You don't just love horses, and you don't just ride horses. You actually compete. So tell us a little bit about your horsey background. Well, you know, it all started with a tangle lesson, frankly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, many years ago, I was planning a trip to Argentina, and uh, my wife and I figured, well, they have horses there, so we should probably take a riding lesson or two along with the tangle lesson. And uh, sure enough, uh, it didn't take long for me to um, catch the horsemanship uh, fever and uh, traveled to Argentina, um, spent a tremendous amount of time in northern Patagonia, came back, uh, continued with my apprenticeship as a horseman, uh, did a lot of work in natural horsemanship as well as classical training um, in dressage and hunter jumper. I currently compete in combined events so that's sort of my my introduction towards cross-country three-day eventing but for now i'm still just doing stadium jumping and uh dressage events and do you spend more time doing that or or filmmaking (laughs) you know uh well i would have to say that um i'm blessed to have the uh the luxury of a work schedule that allows me to Mm -hmm. spend as much time with the barn at the barn with with the horses as I possibly can because being uh, an artist and uh, self-employed, it means that I can come home and work in the dark through the night and spend my day (laughs) if possible with, with the horses. It's a split for sure. But you know, um, somebody asked me if I believed to be myself to be a a horseman first or a filmmaker first. Mm -hmm. And, um, I suppose the simple answer to that is that I'm a filmmaker first, at least in practical terms, because uh, I've been making films ever since I was a a kid, Uh, whereas I was introduced to horses quite late in life, relatively speaking, certainly compared to yourself and Monty. Um, But, you know, thinking about it a little bit further, while it may be true that chronologically speaking, film came first, I would have to say that I'm probably a horseman first because it's it's in my blood in a way that nothing else uh, can mm. ever be. It defines so much of um, how I view the world, how I interact with others, and it most definitely informs how I work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that must be the 
that must that resonates with me. I, you just told us right before we we started recording this that you just came in from the barn that you just had your head in a really good space for this interview, and that's what horses do for us, I suppose. And you could probably carry that over to your work. Then do you do you use the horses to kind of get in a good space for for your editing? You know, um, I'm a documentary filmmaker. Uh, most of the time, uh, I pay the bills by directing TV commercials. Mm. Uh, documentary filmmaking isn't necessarily the most lucrative uh, mm. um, choice of a career, but it's most definitely the most um, rewarding emotionally and, and mostly uh, creatively. And the reason I'm mentioning that is because as a documentarian, my my sole purpose is to um, be a fly on the wall whether it's to spend time uh, telling story A, B, or C, I need to be as invisible and discreet uh, as possible, mm-hmm. but also as present as possible. Um, I need to be attentive, intuitive, uh, engaged with, with the subject. And uh, when it comes to working with horses, outside of my work as a filmmaker, obviously being present and being connected and being uh, engaging in a dialogue with the horse is, is key to the success of, of a ride and to that relationship. And that mm-hmm. absolutely translates to my work as a filmmaker, uh, whether it's in an interview uh, with someone who's never been in front of a camera before or someone who has a great deal of experience uh, in front of the, the camera, or if it's simply being out in the middle of nowhere, uh, getting still lives of you know, landscapes or, or, or whatever, Mm-hmm. The key to um, my finding my way as a as a as an artist and as a filmmaker is in being present, and horses teach me that. I love that. I love that. Uh, and the energy of the horses seems to direct how your next move goes. It seems like you, in the movies that I've seen, it seems to be a pace that you set in each film a little bit different on each their documentaries but do you think that the energy of the horses on the set as it happens you can't fake horses <laughs> on the set <laughs> do you think that does direct your film a little bit well um the difference i suppose between uh the type of films that i make documentaries versus uh, an action film or uh fiction where there are there might be horses in the story um, I don't stage what's going to happen. I mm. have to anticipate. I have to um, just follow with the flow of the events that are unfolding before me. Uh, oh. There's a certain degree of control to the situation given the different contexts, uh, whether it's in a, in a con- quote-unquote control setting like a barn or an arena or a farm or a ranch versus out in the middle of the Andes. Uh, or uh, in the outback of British Columbia, mm-hmm. I uh, in both cases I need to simply adapt to the situation I'm in. I can't. I can't. I'm not working with trained trained horses. By trained horses, I mean I'm not working with stunt horses. Yeah. So when it comes to answering your question about following the energy uh, of the horses, I absolutely need to be to respond to what they're they're saying uh, and where they're leading me. However. Uh, I'm not teaching you anything. I'm not telling you anything you don't know about working with horses. It's, it's not just about being uh, out of their way. It's also understanding how to create that dance 
where there's a beautiful balance, uh, and I keep using the word dialogue, but there's a beautiful balance between you holding your space and, and guiding the energy of the experience of the interaction, as well as receiving the cues that they give you so that it's not them deciding or you deciding it's truly mm. a collaborative effort. Mm, uh, I think, yeah. you, you know, you and I had once talked about natural horsemanship and you asked me what, what it was for me. And um, I've been thinking about it since we spoke. And I believe that natural horsemanship, um, first and foremost, is really a, a conversation. Uh, the emphasis can easily be placed on the human uh, half of the human horsemanship equation. But uh, I, I don't think that's accurate. Uh, I think the only way natural horsemanship, and by natural horsemanship, I mean working with nonviolent methods and, and as few uh, artificial aids as possible, and perhaps mm-hmm. even uh, at liberty, mm-hmm. it's about finding um, that common language, whether it's uh, verbal cues or, or physical cues or uh, simply the presence that you can exert uh, in, 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 in that dynamic that is what is the key for me to natural horsemanship. You don't need to be schooled in it because I think children understand it instinctively when they, when they walk up to a horse and you know, extend their hand to, to give a carrot or a treat to the horse. That is an in, um, innate skill that we all have. Natural horsemanship doesn't really need to be taught. If anything, I think we need to unlearn a lot of yeah. bad habits that we, we see, <laughs> that we witness on television or in the movies or in you know traditional um, um, education of horse, around horses. Mm-hmm. That's true. If- there's, there's never a moment where I'm not somehow putting uh, the pieces together that, uh, that are before me and turning them into some kind of a, a story or or, or something that can inform whatever it is I'm working on. And that's probably more accurate. It's not so much that I'm necessarily think, thinking, okay, this could become something. It's more like this can inform what I'm doing now. Yeah. But, you know, mm-hmm. specifically when it comes to riding, uh, you haven't asked me why I ride. And um, I think mm-hmm. this is probably a good time to answer that question that you haven't yet asked. Because it relates directly to what you're asking about whether or not I'm always working. Mm-hmm. Uh, I ride because it takes me away and out of myself. Yeah. And what I mean by that is that I get out of my own way. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a very meditative meditative experience. Obviously, there's I don't need to tell you 101 things that you have to be thinking about while you're riding, whether mm-hmm. it's your, you know, your position and this and that and this and that and this and that. Uh, and over time, so much of that becomes instinctive. So you don't need to actually be computing that information, but it's still something that occupies your mind. Mm-hmm. That being said, I don't work when I'm riding. Um, I'm not looking to tell a story. I'm not a filmmaker. I'm barely even a human. I'm mm-hmm. as I'm the wind as far as I'm concerned. Oh, when I'm that. when I'm anywhere near my horse, uh, and certainly while I'm riding, and and hopefully uh, basking in the afterglow afterwards as well. Yeah, yeah. That's why I ride because it takes me away from everything else. Which doesn't mean that I'm not present. If anything, I'm about as present, you know, molecularly speaking, as I can possibly be in yeah. that very moment. 
that's what I think is the key to a successful relationship, certainly with a horse, but uh, just in general. I think that's a successful ride. I I think that's why a lot of us ride anymore. Horses are recreational, right? There's very few people who use horses pound for pound in our society for their jobs. Uh, they're if you know plowing fields, et cetera. They're not tractors so much anymore. They're no. recreational, and, and that means that's that's choice based. You know, that is our uh, our choice to get out there and be with a horse. And I think you just beautifully explained why a lot of people ride because horses are in the present, aren't they? And we want to be that with them. We want to be in that present moment and and get away from it all and come back refreshed. And I think your movies, let's get into those a little bit. I think your movies, your documentaries perfectly reflect that. Um, Let's, let's start with, with blind spot just because I think the herd actually for me personally touched me as much as any documentary has. Uh, and Blind Spot was harder to relate to at first. Um, why don't you give us a little bit of the, um, without me explaining, I'd rather have the filmmaker explain it, uh, what you set out to do with Blind Spot, the three people that were involved and the, the, set the scene for us a little bit. And then tell us about that presence. Tell us why that film said that they had to be in the present to do that. All right. Well, the, we can start with Blind Spot, uh, which mm. the, the full title is Blind Spot Moments Unseen. And I'll tell you very briefly why the full title is Blind Spot Moments Unseen. Uh, the working title is Blind Spot, and I meant to use the words blind spot as a figurative term mm-hmm. because it refers, of, of course, to our own um, uh, literal and, and figurative blind spot as well as that of a horse. But also it refers to what we don't see in life. Right. Um, and uh, the moments unseen half of the title came about be- while we were on the trail. So let me back up now and tell you what the film is actually about. Yeah. Uh, the, the premise of the story is that three blind people who have virtually no experience around horses cross the Andes in Argentina by horseback. Uh, now they don't cross the Argentinian Andes on their own. They yeah. encourage guides, and, and <laughs> it wasn't was it wasn't a complete stunt. <laughs> yeah, no, it's amazing though. It, I mean, these people were really brave. I thought I was surprised at uh, yeah they had ridden, but not a whole lot. You were brave, I think, to take that on as any good uh, you know Sherpa would be. But but it, yeah, I mean, that's the scene set. Now, what did you set out to to What's the story you really wanted to tell? Or maybe you didn't know going in, like you said, you're a fly on the wall. So what what was the take home for you on that? Well, as you point out, uh, in the case of any documentary, you can only control so much of the, of the narrative uh, ahead of time because you never know what's going to happen. And, mm. and God knows so many unexpected moments occurred during that the making of that film, uh, all of which were absolutely beautifully aligned with the the creative genesis of the original idea, which was to find a new way of seeing. Mm-hmm. Uh, hence, the the um, um, uh, the idea of including people who were visually impaired. You know, I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation that I went to Argentina and I spent some time on horseback riding in northern Patagonia, and 
for days and even for weeks, I never took a picture because I wasn't seeing anything that I had already seen in a yeah. book or in a movie. And as an artist, uh, as a documentarian, as a filmmaker, and just as a as a thinking person, I'm always trying to find something that will educate me, but will also expand my way of thinking. And mm-hmm. specifically in the case of my work, being an image maker, I'm looking for new ways of expressing myself visually. And the reason I wasn't taking any pictures, as I say, is because I wasn't seeing anything I hadn't already. So I wondered who could perhaps lead me to seeing in a new and more mm-hmm. profound way. Mm-hmm. And that's where the idea of having someone who is visually impaired. Oh, I love that. that. Yeah, that about. makes sense. That makes, oh, that just touched my soul. That's amazing. Um, it, as a horse person, you, you you watch it for the the things that can go wrong, I guess, maybe a little too much. Uh, but but to explore those breakthroughs with them was just, I, I felt like a voyeur, you know, <laughs> watching something really incredible unfold. And so, and tell us about, heard because it's uh, it's very you it's it's a it's a beautiful film it takes place in british columbia up in the hills right. yeah and uh and eight people participate uh in this collective i think it was described as a collective spirit quest of meditation and equine therapy all very different people men women uh t- tell me about your intent there yeah, herd is radically different in structure from blind spot moments on scene, yet uh, it, it shares one very common element, and of course, and it's the healing nature of horses. Mm. And it's funny because as I say that, I'm realizing <laughs> what story with horses isn't, <laughs> isn't a healing story. That's very good, very <laughs> but, good. You know, the healing power of horses. Mm. Yeah, well, the the film all takes place at the Equinicity Retreat, which is a privately owned ranch uh, just north of Kamloops in British Columbia by Liz Mitten Ryan, who's a lifelong horse person and artist. And she holds these, we'll call them an informal retreat or informal equine-assisted environment retreat, where uh, she has one herd of horses that are all related. Uh, so they're a family. Uh, they have family squabbles as any good family might, but they also have a very unique disposition in that they're, because they, they know each other, the hierarchy in the herd is clearly well established. And so they're extremely cooperative mm-hmm. and more inclined, I think, to interact in a way that is beneficial to the people who attend these retreats. And the reason why people attend the retreat is to, develop for their own sake a way of uh well it's a healing experience these aren't mm-hmm. people who have uh, necessarily physical disabilities which is often used of in the case of you know equine assisted experiences mm-hmm. uh they're not uh, recovering uh, from any particular trauma uh, or at least they're not the military veterans but mm-hmm. we all have our own yeah. issues that we need to work through, some of which are on the surface and some are considerably deeper that we don't mm-hmm. uh, face on a daily basis. So these people go there to spend time interacting with the horde, with the herd of horses in order to become a communal herd of horses and humans so that that reciprocity that I talked about from the very beginning and natural horsemanship and, and the dialogue where it's not a one-way 
experience, but rather a, a shared one, is what occurs. And I document that in the film as meditatively, as you say, as possible. And by that, I mean, I'm not looking to simply um, exploit the, the visual qualities of horses, which are easy to, to attain because they're just such extraordinary animals. What I really wanted to do, and this took time and patience and stillness and mm. mindfulness from, from me, was to be, I mentioned being invisible, as invisible and as discreet as possible while still holding my space so that I could be a witness to the communion that takes place between the human and the horse. And you can see quite literally a physical change occurring in both creatures. Mm. Yeah. And that's what the yeah. film is about. It's so good. It's so good. This reminds me of a question I wanted to ask you about too, because you said that working with horses has made you a better person and a better filmmaker. And you've answered that somewhat but if you could answer that in just a sentence or two, what is it? What has it done to make you a better person? What What are the attributes that you feel like you've taken on? Well, you know that horses, of course, are prey animals, mm -hmm. uh, and humans are predators. Mm -hmm. And one of the magical characteristics of the relationship between horses and, and humans is the fact that prey and predator can coexist in, in harmony. Um, what horses have taught me as a person is stillness, is mm. um, the idea of connecting with others in a way, whether they're people who are like-minded or who have opposing views. Uh, it's allowed me to integrate those ideas in a way that will make sense to me and that I could hopefully benefit from. And I don't mean that in a selfish way. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, grow mm -hmm. as a person and as an artist. Mm -hmm. Horses have taught me stillness. They've mm -hmm. taught me um, how to become a better listener, which of course is a fundament fundamental quality to being uh, a filmmaker and particularly a documentarian. Mm hmm I thought maybe there was a, a double entendre in the title of herd. You could add an A. <laughs> yeah. And right? Yeah. And uh Absolutely. Yeah. So you are heard within the silence of the herd loudly in this film. Even in the quiet, even just with the birds chirping. It's just so gorgeous and the interactions are happening all over. And one woman had lost her son, and you just saw healing happening within her, just being at peace and being around others that kind of understood. Horses are great at understanding life and death. They they do remind us to breathe, and they talk to us about living and dying and how to mourn, but how to get over it, too. And I think a lot of that came out in the films, uh, both of them, really. I, I think both of them said a lot about how it is to be with horses and how they make you better people. Well, the so, word herd is, is both a that, noun and, and a verb, right? right. Uh, oh, right? And, and so there's a, there's a passive quality to it as well as an active quality. It, it, it's meant to evoke the duality of, of that, of that idea and of that experience. It's, it's not 
finite. It, it's a constant exchange and it's a fluid exchange. I love that. I love that. I, I think one of the most common questions dad gets about the title for his book, The Man Who Listens to Horses, people want to, in their brains, they want to change it. Is that the book, The Man Who Talks to Horses? You know, they want to flip it around. And once they get it, they understand what listening is about. So you guys are, are, you have parallel universes in that, I think, too. But I appreciate this. So tell us a little bit about where you're going to be next. I think you said next week you're going off to another film festival. You've just got back from San Diego, a, a beautiful festival there. How did you do with films? Uh, both films were received uh, with open arms uh, prior to the festival. The festival organizers were thrilled to be able to include them in, in the presentation of the, of the festival itself. And the audiences were extremely receptive. Mm. And I, I've been joking that I was a bit of a hugging hug dispensing machine after <laughs> each film because people come to me in tears or fighting back tears, sharing stories that they claim that they hadn't told anyone or you know hadn't mm-hmm. thought of for years, but that were prompted by watching the film and it just moved them to tears and, and even Monty for that matter, if I can yeah, be so bold, came to me after heard and he said, you know what, I got to do more of what you do in my work with horses that you do yeah. in your filmmaking. So, I mean, that was, yeah. that was certainly um, more than flattering. That was, uh, I don't know. It floored me obviously to receive that kind of a compliment and that kind of an endorsement from Monty. Yeah, um, so yeah, San Diego film festival just finished. We did extremely well. And then uh, next week, I'm going to Indianapolis for the Heartland Film Festival, which is an Oscar qualifying film festival uh, in Indianapolis. Oh, my goodness. Well, we are so pleased to have been honored to have you on our show. And uh, we hope that you'll come back with some more work and more awards and more knowledge and grow as a person and share it all with us. So maybe we can grow up a little bit with you. Stefan well, Morel. I certainly, I certainly hope so. And if I may share with your audience that there's still yes. ways of staying in touch with me uh, directly or indirectly through the websites for the film. Yes, please give us. Uh, well, for Herd, it's uh, easy to remember. It's herdfilm.com. And uh, for Blindspot, it's blindspotfilm.com. They're very easy to remember. Yeah, and it's and H-E-R-D. Both, we should, since correct. I confused it that way, yeah, H-E-R-D <laughs> film.com and, and blindspotfilm.com. Okay, and do you have a Facebook page or is it websites only? Or? Uh, they both have Facebook pages. They both have Twitter pages. All um, and, and there's direct links to the ranch in Argentina where we film Blindspot and there's a direct link to the Equinicity Retreats on the Herd. Uh, film.com page, uh, which is where we filmed Heard, of course. There's all kinds of information. And in fact, in the case of the Blindspot film.com uh, page, it's a fully accessible page. Um, by that, I mean it was designed with the visually impaired uh, user in mind. So it's both extremely beautiful, but also very intuitive uh, for as an interface. With that That's in mind. wonderful. That is wonderful and so thoughtful. Thank you so much, Stefan Morel. I just so appreciate you, and we will have you on again. Please don't hesitate. Stay in touch, and maybe I would love to have you to flag us up farms in in the spring in May if you uh, if you're open to it. I'll send you some dates because we're we want to have a little reunion of all those wonderful people that we've met uh, involved in the film festival. So hold a date in May for us. 
Absolutely. Thank you very much, Debbie, and thank you, Jen. Whisper the language of the herd. Listen, you don't have to say a word. It's time for Jamie Jennings to fetch an email from Monty Roberts' inbox and share a morsel of Monty's wisdom in a little segment we like to call Ask Monty. Leave this world a better place than The magic in the language of the herd. Dear Monty, I attended one of your demonstrations recently and was anxious to learn every detail of your work. I sailed boats as a kid and I heard you mention a few knots that you said were useful. Can you please tell me which ones you use and why? Monty's answer. Knots are a subject that I often visit during the course of one of my demonstrations. I believe it is essential that every horse person has a good working knowledge of the essential half dozen or so knots that are most often used when working with horses. The bowline is a knot that, in my opinion, anyone calling himself a horseman absolutely must understand. It's a knot that can be tied around the horse's neck, and no matter how hard they pull, it won't allow the rope to get tighter. Thus, it is virtually impossible for the horse to choke himself with the bowline knot. It is also true that no matter how much pressure is applied to the rope, the bowline, unlike many knots, will remain in such a state that it is easy to untie. One can put a bowline knot in a rope, tow a truck with it, and then pop it loose very easily. In the world of tying horses up, there are several slip knots that can be employed. One will tighten up on the post, and another won't. Some are easier to untie if the horse is in trouble, and some are more difficult. One should become familiar with two or three of the best slip knots to use when tying a horse to a post, tree, or hitch track. The clove hitch is a knot that has several forms and applications. It has many uses in the horse industry, and one should become familiar with it. The clove hitch can be used in combination with various slip knots. It is the type of knot that would keep a rope from sliding down a sleek pole that a horse is tied to. In sailing, one must become familiar with dozens of knots. It doesn't seem too much to ask to ask that a horseman become familiar with the variation of three knots, whose use will dramatically improve the safety of both people and horses. The knowledge of the bowline, the slip knot, and the clove hitch is essential for every horse person. Hi, I'm Monty Roberts, and I'm dedicated to training horses without pain. You can learn to do it too on my Equus Online University. Western, English, the beginner, or the advanced rider. It doesn't matter. You can connect with other students online too, on our forum, and there's a new lesson every week. It's a lifetime of learning for you on my Equus Online University at MontyRoberts.com. What in the wide, wide world of sports is going on here? Where in the world is Monty Roberts? Monty is looking forward to meeting some new friends, two-legged and four-legged, January 6, 2018. This is the new one, West Coast Dressage Festival Masterclass Series. Monty will demonstrate his expertise and skill. First in Temecula, California at Galway Downs. That's pretty exciting. He'll be there with Boyd Martin, a rock star, a three-day eventer. And then April 21, he will be in the Thousand Oaks area of California at El Campion Farms with some rock stars there 
there too. So watch for that and links. And then July 23 through August 3, uh, 2018, he'll be at his Gentling Wild Horses course at Flag is Up Farms in California. And then August 6 through 10, right after that, August 6 through 10, 2018, is the Monty's Special Training. We've been doing that since 2006 at Flag is Up Farms in California. And there's been a lot of special training going on all that while. Yes. <laughs> a lot of good horses. Now, too. in case you were not able to commit that all to memory, you can find all of that and more at MontyRoberts.com. Or if you love want to talk to somebody, that's right. They have real human beings at, Mon- at uh, Flag is Up Farms. You can give them a call. And the phone number is 805-688-6288. And by the way... If you can't commit that to memory because you're busy doing something else, go to MontyRoberts.com and the phone number's there too. Ta-da! It is. <laughs> Under context. Under yes. context. That's right. And for details about today's show, go to HorsemanshipRadio.com where you'll find links, photos, and more information about our guests. And guess what? We still want your feedback. We say that every episode and we still want more. Go to Facebook, yep. type in Monty <laughs> Roberts, and then click the like button. And type in there what you want us to talk about, topics, interesting people, fun stuff, cute pictures. We love those, too. Yeah. That's right. And if you are someone who likes to live your life 150 characters at a time, you can follow Monty Roberts on Twitter. His handle is Monty underscore Roberts. And so that you don't miss any episodes, those are the episodes that you help us make better by going to Facebook and Twitter. Get the app. The Horse Radio Network app is free and easy to use and available for Android and iPhone. Go to your app store today and search Horse Radio Network and download that sucker. And you can mm-hmm. also subcri- subscribe via iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. Look at that podcatcher. Yeah. And many thanks to our sponsors, too, who probably have apps of their own. So that is Omega Fields, Cavallo Horse and Rider, and Monty's Equus Online University. And be sure to visit all the other great shows on the Horse Radio Network, too, at www.horseradionetwork.com. Until next time, have many happy horse hours. <laughs>